0: This sermon was recorded at the Church of Christ, Northwest Arkansas. We are Christians seeking to worship God in spirit and in truth according to the New Testament. Come worship with us Sunday mornings at 1030 at 1708 Elm Springs Road in Springdale, Arkansas. Good morning. Certainly wonderful to be here. Very thankful for the opportunity to, to meet with this congregation. I had a wonderful weekend with David and Shannon and enjoyed that time very much. And I've been looking forward to this invitation to come be with this congregation. Though I've never been here before, your your work and the the, the stories of your work has traveled far. And it's always been an encouragement to hear of the labor that you're doing in this area. And so I want to thank you for your commitment to Christ and your willingness to work and labor in this area. And as the story and the news of your labors goes forth, it it encourages others. And I want you to know that others are praying for you and and rejoice with you in your work and labor up here. This morning I've been asked to study with you a, a sermon called the Tomb of the Unknown Saints. It's one of my favorite studies out of the book of Hebrews. If you have a Bible, I invite you to turn over to Hebrews chapter 11. We're going to stick in Hebrews chapter 10, 11, and a little bit in 12 for the most part today. We're going to spend a lot of time there. I find this section of Hebrews chapter 11, beginning in verse 35, to be very interesting. It says, women received their dead raised to life again, others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others had trial of cruel mockings and scourgings, yea, moreover of bonds and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn asunder, they were tempted, they were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and in mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. All these having obtained a good report through faith, received not the promise, God having provided something better some better thing for us that they without us should not be made perfect you know what's interesting when you turn to the book of Hebrews in the 11th chapter here you begin there and you begin to read about faith and it talks about uh, what faith is and gives us a working definition of faith and then it begins to talk about different individuals Abraham Sarah Enoch and Noah and other individuals and one of the things you can do in all of those examples is turn back into the Old Testament and you can read the story about Noah and you can go, okay, when Hebrews 11 says, by faith Noah did this, we look back there and we can read the story. But these last few verses, you can't do that anywhere. You know, he begins to name specific individuals and then he says, time would fail me to tell of David and Barak and he starts to generalize until he gets down to about verse 35 and we can't even begin to imagine who some of these people are. He talks about stopping the mouths of lion. That's probably Daniel. But as it gets into 35, women receive their dead raised again. You can search back and forth and you just can't find that story. And sometimes these individuals get overlooked in a study of Hebrews chapter 11. But I want to present to you today that I believe that these individuals that we're looking at here are the pinnacle of what Hebrews chapter 11 is about that these people are the greatest example in this chapter that we're supposed to draw to. And I want to study that, but to get to that point, we need to back up a little bit and take a little bit of a... a overview, if you will, or a review of the book of Hebrews. We're not going to go extreme detailed, but I do want to kind of catch us up to Hebrews chapter 11. It seems there were some in, in the first century, some Jews that had converted into Christianity that were desiring to go back to the old law. We're not told why. Maybe it was persecution. Maybe it was temptation. But for some reason, after converting into Christianity, they began to be drawn back and going, hey, maybe, maybe we should go back to the law of Moses. Maybe we should go back to just being Jews. So the Holy Spirit creates an argument for you and I through the book of Hebrews to show them that they don't need to go back. What they have is better. He starts in Hebrews chapter 1. He says, God who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake, unto the fa- spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, by whom he also made the worlds. And from this point forward through about Hebrews chapter 10, it's a contrast between the law of Moses and Jesus and The argument is this, what you have as a Christian, what you have in Jesus is so much superior to what you left under the law of Moses. He begins in chapter 1 and 2 and makes an argument that says Christ is superior to the angels. Now you can understand angels here as the heavenly beings with the halos and the wings and the harps and all that stuff and that's fine if you're thinking of them in that manner. But if you consider the word angel just means messenger from God and, and you're looking back at the Old Testament at times, that God called various people to deliver his message not necessarily the prophets but could be inclusive of them the argument stays the same is that Jesus Christ is a better messenger from God than anything you've ever had he come directly from God he knows God's will and as such he's a better messenger he's a better than the angels in fact Christ is superior to Moses Moses we know was the lawgiver and he brought the law down from Mount Sinai the 10 commandments and the 6 that all total law of Moses. And he says, listen, Christ as a lawgiver is better than the lawgiver of Moses. In chapter 4, he gets into the rest of the Old Testament, the Sabbath day rest. And he says, listen, you need to labor to make sure you don't miss the rest of the new covenant. The rest that Jesus offers you is far superior to that mosaical rest that you're used to. Don't leave this rest in Christ to go back to that inferior rest. In chapters 5, 6, and 7, he gets into the highest. The high priest talks about how the high priest of the old covenant had to first offer sacrifices for their own sins then they could offer sacrifice for the sins of the people but Christ didn't have to do that he offered himself once at pure and holy as a sacrifice for the sins of the whole world and to sit down at the right hand of the throne of God which brings about the new covenant He said that old covenant was growing old and ready to vanish away because it was inferior to the new covenant that Christ brings, that this is a superior covenant. He talks in chapter 10 that the the sacrifices, he says there of those sacrifices of this old covenant, the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sins, but the blood of Christ justifies us and frees us. And the whole argument is this, why would you go back to the law of Moses when you have this superior thing? Now, we can see that. I think it's a pretty clear contrast for you and I today. And we might look at this and go, okay, but what does this have to do with any of us that I know of? And and I don't know for sure 100%. Ben hasn't told me, but I'm just going to shoot in the dark here and say, there's probably not anybody in here that was a Jew that converted to Christianity. That's who this is all written to. These Jews that were going to the law of Moses that converted out of that. So why should I study this? There's no temptation for us to go back to the law of Moses. At least I don't think there is. So what does this have to do with us? Well, the answer, I believe, is a lot of times like these Jews that were tempted to go back, there's a temptation for you and I sometimes to go back to what we used to have before becoming a Christian, before surrendering our life completely. That call, whether it's through uh, temptation, through pressure, through Other means that there's this drawing back to the sins of the old life. And the answer is the same. Why would you give up all of this to go back to that? And that's the Holy Spirit's argument. And he begins to make an application of all of this for you and I. In Hebrews, the 10th chapter, if you'll grab a Bible there, I want us to begin in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 19. And we're going to look at some of the application that he begins to make here. He starts off with that word, "...having therefore brethren..." And I want you to notice that therefore there. You could argue that that goes back to the start of chapter 10. I really believe that this is a transition from the whole book for chapters 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, the first part of chapter 10, that he's talking about the comparison. Starting verse 19 of chapter 10, moving forward, he makes an application. And he begins by saying, "...having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus." "...by a new and living way which is consecrated for us through the veil that is to say as flesh. And having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water." Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promised, and let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much more as you see the day approaching. He begins to make this application that since what you have is better, don't go back. And he starts off in these first few verses here, and he says, Don't you realize that you now possess boldness? to enter into the holiest. Now, that may not grab your attention as the way it would have grab a Jew. In the Jewish temple, we know that they had two different chambers. One was the holy place that the high priest would go in daily, offer incense, light the incense. That was the table of showbread and all that kind of stuff. But then beyond that was the holiest, the holy of holy places. And in there stood the Ark of the Covenant that contained the the tent, uh, the, take two tables with the Ten Commandments on it and Aaron's rod that had budded. On it was two angels whose wings faced each other and right at the tip where their wings touched was considered the mercy seat uh, that's talked about in the New Testament and the Old Testament. Upon that mercy seat... Upon that altar, the high priest would go in once a year and he would sprinkle blood on it for the sins of all the people. Now as you read about this, not necessarily in the Old Testament, you read Jewish customs, that this was a very scary ordeal for them to go. Because a person going into this holiest, if they weren't the person that was supposed to be in there, they could be struck dead. And there's some writings that talk about how when they would do this, they would take and tie a rope around the high priest and he would keep it taunt and they would fill the room with smoke and if the people holding that rope ever felt it go limp, they would pull his body out as quick as they could. It was a scary thing to walk into the holiest. You're coming before the throne of God and you better be pure. You better be righteous. You better be right with God or you're going to die. And he says, listen, don't you know, Christian... You can have boldness to enter into the holiest. Not because you're righteous, not because you're better than everybody else, but because Jesus Christ has saved you and has washed you and made you clean. You can have not arrogance, but confidence to come before the throne of God. What a blessing. He says, don't throw that away. Don't go back to to this world. Don't go back to Judaism. Don't go back to to the lust of your flesh. Know that you can stand before God in all boldness, that you should draw near to Jesus. You know, a lot of times we struggle with our sins. And one of the things that we like to do is to, to kind of try to hide them and pretend they're not there. That maybe if I don't talk to Jesus about it in prayer, maybe He won't bring it up. Kind of I thinking. But you know and I know that Jesus sees it all. And he says, listen, draw near to your high priest. Come close to him. And through him you can have boldness to go before the throne of God. To know that you're in a special relationship with God. That God loves you. That God saved you despite the sin. You've got this high priest that's not just distant and far off. But he's already told us that this high priest can be touched with the feelings of our infirmities. He knows what it means to struggle, to battle, to be tempted. And because of that, we can draw near to him, and he allows us to stand before God in full assurance of faith. Not doubting, not, well, I hope I'm saved. Well, maybe if, I'm, if I do good enough this week, I'd be saved. He said, no, full assurance, full confidence, knowing that Christ was the ultimate sacrifice, that he saved you and you stand justified before God. You can have all assurance of faith, not in self, in faith. God, you're going to do what you said you would do. And I have boldness to stand before you through the blood of Jesus Christ. And I have faith that you're going to cleanse me through that blood. What an amazing story. And that's why he tells us in this chapter to hold fast that profession of faith without wavering. Don't forget that day that you obeyed the gospel, when it became crystal clear to you that you were guilty of sin, but that Jesus Christ died for your sins and was resurrected and through being buried with Him in baptism and resurrected to walk in newness of life, that you were saved. He said, do you remember that? Hold fast to that profession and don't let it go and take this knowledge and stir one another up with it. Use this knowledge. Use this information to constantly be reminding one another we serve a mighty God that has saved us and we can stand before Him in confidence, in full assurance of faith. Now, I want to notice this word faith here. It's an interesting word. It appears 32 times, I believe it's 32 times, in the book of Hebrews. 26 of those 32 start here in Hebrews chapter 10 and run through Hebrews chapter 11 and end in about Hebrews chapter 12, the first three verses. That's a lot of faith in a really short period of time. It's almost like the Holy Spirit goes, hey, there's a topic I want you to pay attention to here. This faith thing. And hold on to that because we're going to come back and really look at this. But he said, I want you to have full assurance of faith. Hold fast the profession of your faith. But then he goes on. After encouraging them and making application going, don't you know how great you have it? He provides a warning in the next several verses. Beginning in verse 26, he says, For if we sin willfully, after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation, which shall devour the adversaries. He that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. Of how much sore punishment suppose ye shall he be thought worthy who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God and counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing and done despite under the Spirit of grace. For we know him that hath said, Vengeance belongeth unto me. I will recompense, saith the Lord. And again the Lord shall judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall in the hands of the living God. So as he begins to apply this contrast and say, listen, don't you know that everything you have in Jesus is better than what you had under the old law? He begins to apply it first in these verses going, look at the confidence you have. But then he turns around and applies it as a warning. He says, friends, I want to warn you, if you're going to play a game with God, you need to be scared. He starts off and says, for if we sin willfully, that's one of those phrases, I think, that's tripped up people for a long time because if you really stop and think about it, if we're honest, is there any sin you've ever committed that wasn't willful? Every sin I've ever committed was one I chose to commit. Even if I put you on the floor on your knees right here and said, commit this sin or die, and you go, well, I didn't really have a choice. Yeah, you did. You valued your life and said, I'd rather commit this sin and live than die. It was a willful choice, wasn't it? Every sin is willful. So, what does he mean if we sin willfully? That sounds like we're all in trouble, right? Very specifically, what he's talking about is this sin of walking away and replacing our faith in Jesus Christ into something else. You can see how this applies very directly to the Jews. He said, if you sin willfully, if you choose to walk away from Jesus and try to put your faith in the law of Moses again, there's no sacrifice out there that can take away your sins. I've already shown you how the blood of bulls and goats couldn't do it, but only the blood of Jesus. And there's nothing any of us can turn to today that's going to be an answer for our sins. I can't do enough good deeds. I can't get active enough in the church. I can't go out and be a nice person. There's nothing else that's going to take away my sin. So if you reject the sacrifice of Jesus Christ for your sins, he said, I want to call to your mind how God punished people in the Old Testament. If you take the blood with which you were sanctified and you say, I don't care anymore, I'm going back to that old way, he said, just remember what God did to people in the Old Testament. How when they rebelled against Korah rebelled against Moses the earth opened up and swallowed 10,000 people he said you think God's any different today what do you think he's going to do to people that take the blood of his son and trample it under their feet and you know when we walk away from Christ that's exactly what we're doing it's saying I don't need your blood God I don't need the blood of your son. It doesn't matter to me. And that's why he tells you and I that it's a fearful thing to fall in the hands of the living God. Yes, I'm going to make this contrast and I want you to know that what you have in Christ is better. It gives you uh, the, the confidence, the boldness to enter in the holiest holies, to draw near to Jesus. But be warned, if you play a game with God, you're going to lose. It's a fearful thing to fall in the hands of the living God. He picks up the argument by going back... I believe, to their, the day they obeyed the gospel. He said, but call to remembrance the former days in which after you were illuminated, you endured a great fight of afflictions, partly while you were made a gazing stock both by reproaches and afflictions, and partly while you became companions of them that were so used. For you had compassion of me and my bonds, and took joyfully the spoiling of your goods, knowing in yourselves that ye have in heaven a better and an enduring substance. And he comes right back to this idea of converted. Remember the former days. Do you remember the day that you obeyed the gospel? When it became that moment and you went, I need to be right with God. And how you felt coming up out of the water, drying off, putting on your dry clothes, knowing in that moment, I'm saved. I recall the day that happened in the summer of 1991. There was a fellow by the name of Pat Manning that was preaching a gospel meeting in Amarillo, Texas. And about halfway through the sermon, y'all know how short Pat's sermons are. <laughs> about halfway through Pat's sermon, I was sitting on this side here, and I was thinking, "Will this guy shut up? I want to get baptized. I saw my sin. I saw the solution. I beat the song leader to the front row, and I was going, come on, quit dragging. Let's go get this song over with. I was ready. I obeyed the gospel. I went home excited to tell friends and family, listen, I found salvation. It's easy. Believe, repent, confess, be baptized. Die like Jesus, be buried like Him. It's so simple. Anybody can do it. Why wouldn't you do it? I was fired up. I was excited. That's the exact argument he's using here. He said, don't you remember when you saw the light Those former days when you were converted, it didn't matter. Nothing else mattered to you. Didn't matter what friends and family were saying. Didn't matter, Mike, that when you went home and told your mom that you obeyed the gospel, that she yelled and screamed and threw a glass at you. That didn't stop you. You were excited. He said, Don't you remember that? He said, Don't get rid of that. He said, You endured a great fight of afflictions. When these people obeyed the gospel, it wasn't just a casual decision and everybody in the family going, oh, we're so happy for you. There was some anger. They were being driven out of their community. Their family was disassociating with them, saying, don't you come around here anymore. You're no longer a part of this family. And it didn't stop with that. They were persecuted for it. And he said, don't you remember you endured that? And not only endured it, but you became a gazing stock, a spectacle. If you do the study on this word, gazing stock, and and get into the word spectacle there, it has to do with like being the center ring in a three ring circus. And all the lights are on you. And everybody's looking and laughing and pointing at you, mocking you, belittling you. Everybody sees you. You're a spectacle. You're the focus. He said, You endured all of that. Not that you didn't just endure it, you took it joyfully and became a companion of those that were doing the same or suffering the same thing. And you rejoiced in it. How different is that from us as Christians today? What happens when the government makes it a little tough to be a Christian? What do we start doing? I have my rights. This is a Christian nation. You can't do that. We talk about lawsuits and protest. He said, "These people," he said, "y'all took it joyfully." How? How did they become a gazing stock and a companion to those that were made gazing stocks, enduring this great fight of afflictions? How did they do that? Because he said, "You saw an eternal picture. You knew there was something better." And all that was going on around you didn't matter. What mattered was eternity. He said, your heart was there. Your focus there. He said, don't you remember how committed you are? Why are you wavering now? Why waver? Same could be asked of us. Why waver to be drawn back to that sinful lifestyle that we were escaped through the blood of Jesus Christ? He completes the argument here In the last few verses of Hebrews chapter 10, picking up verse 35, he says, Cast not away therefore your confidence, which hath great recompense of reward. For you have need of patience that after you have done the will of God you might receive the promise. For yet a little while he that shall come will come and will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith, but if any man draw back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. But we are not of them who draw back into perdition, but of them that believe to the saving of the souls. So he started this argument application by saying, don't you know how great you have it? That you can boldly come before God. Don't play a game with God, but think back to when you were first converted and don't get rid of that confidence. Not confidence in yourself, but confidence in God. That he's going to save you that God is faithful and he'll keep his promise. Why? Because you need that patience. Not like I get in this line and it's the slowest line and I'm sitting there going, come on, hurry up. Patience here means staying power, the ability to endure. He said don't get rid of that confidence in God because you need that patience because eventually the reward is coming. Don't forget that. It can get confusing and we can get short-sighted and we can only see what's here and now. And we forget that the reward is coming. He said, you need that patience. You need that staying power. And the just shall live by faith, not by sight. It may get bad in your life. It may get tough. The temptations may swell. And you think you can't endure. Quit looking with your eyes, he says. And live by faith. And don't draw back. That's the whole point. He says, listen, I want you to know God isn't the kind that's going to have this idea of people that won't live in faith. He said, I want you to have that faith, to know that the just live by faith. You need that faith. You need that staying power because I'm not going to reward those that draw back, but I want you to be of them that believe to the saving of the soul. What does that look like? What does it look like to be of them that believe to the saving of the soul? Well, that's where Hebrews chapter 11 comes in. The Hall of Fame of Faith, as we call it. I want to tell you, when we look at Hebrews chapter 11, I believe we miss the point when we refer to it as the Hall of Fame of Faith. Because let's be honest, when I begin to read Hebrews chapter 11, and I read, by faith Abraham did this, by faith Sarah did this, by faith Noah did this, you know what? Pretty soon I begin to go, I I can't do that. I mean, what is the Hall of Fame? It's not just people that are good. It's not just people that are the best. It's the best of the very best. Think about the NFL, National Football League here in America. We have a National Football League Hall of Fame. How many people get into that that play football? Just stop and go all the way back down to the very bottom. How many kids play youth football? How many kids that play youth football make it to junior high football? How many junior high football players make it to high school ball? How many high schoolers make it to college ball. How many that made it from college ball make it to the pros? How many in the pros actually get into the Hall hall of Fame? I did the math one time and I've forgotten it, but it was something like point, I think it was like you had one sixteenth of a percent of a chance to make the Hall of Fame in the NFL. That's not good odds. (laughs) And we look at people that are in the Hall of Fame and we compare ourselves to them we go, I can't do it. There used to be a basketball player, some of you may have heard of his name, a guy by the name of Michael Jordan. When I was a kid, he was the superstar. He was number one. Everybody wanted to had commercials about Michael Jordan. Every other commercial was one about him. And there was one that had a song, I want to be, I want to be, I want to be like Mike. And all they would do is show on this commercial is all these people out there with a the basketball trying to mimic Michael Jordan's move. One show would show him in a game and doing some move on some other NBA player, and the next scene would be some kid out there on the playground trying to do the same move. You know what some of us learned pretty quick with the basketball in our hand? I ain't going to be like Mike. <laughs> I ain't Michael. You know what I did? I put the basketball down. I quit playing cuz I can't be like Mike. You know when we come to the scriptures and we look at Abraham and Sarah and Rahab and Enoch and we go this is the hall of fame these are the superheroes. You know it doesn't take me long to look at them and go I don't know that I can do that move. I know I can be like that. I want to tell you I believe we're missing the point of Hebrews chapter 11. These people are not there for you and I to compare ourselves to. That is not the point of it. In fact, the scriptures teach against me comparing myself to another person. Consider what Jesus says here in Luke chapter 18 as he talks about these two men that go up to the temple to pray, the one a Pharisee and the other a publican. And he says the publican stands and prays thus with himself, God, I thank thee that I am not as other men are extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this publican. I fast twice in the week. I give tithes of all that I possess. We're told the publican stood afar off and would not so much as look up to heaven, but smote upon his breast and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus tells us that man, the publican, went to his house justified. And I get it as you continue to read in the context. The immediate application that Jesus makes is about those that exalt themselves will be abased or humbled. And those that humble themselves will be exalted. I get that. But notice the problem here. The Pharisee didn't understand who he was before God, did he? Because all he did was compare himself to what he thought he saw in other people. Can, can we be honest this morning? A lot of us don't know each other. Y'all don't know me. I hope to get to know y'all. But you know who you're going to get to know when you get to know my call? And I'm going to guess who I'm going to get to know as I know you. The version of me that I want you to know. And every one of us do that every day of our lives. You're not going to know my weaknesses, my fears, My struggles at least not at first, not until we get open with one another and build that kind of relationship, right? And so if I were to sit here this morning and begin to compare myself to you, you know what I'm comparing myself to? A nice, clean, polished version of you and not the real you. God said, that's not what I want you to do. You're not wise doing that. In fact, he tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 12, he says, For we dare not make ourselves the number or compare ourselves with them that commend themselves. But they measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves are not wise. Because you don't really make a full comparison. Listen, I, I've known Ben for a while Knew him back before he obeyed the gospel, knew him as a young man. I I can tell you some of Ben's mistakes. I got some good stories. If y'all want them, just ask me for them later. I'll dish on him. But you know what I do when I compare myself to Ben? I forget of all his mistakes and all his failures. And I begin to compare myself to this idealized person that I think Ben is. And I don't get a true picture of who he is. And I don't get a true picture, most of all, of who I am. Listen, when we go back to Hebrews chapter 11 and we begin talking about some of these people, they weren't perfect. Noah was a drunk. I want you to know, Abraham had an ordeal with his wife where twice he told his wife to pretend to be his sister. I'm just going to tell you, any of you church leaders, John, if you all ever have this problem at Stillwater, don't call me. (laughs) I want no part of this. And he did it not once, he did it twice. And Sarah stayed with him. That's amazing. Sarah laughed at God. Rahab was a harlot. David was a murderer. I want to tell you, God's not going, hey listen, by faith the drunk did this. By faith Abraham, this perfect guy, did this. That's not the point of Hebrews chapter 11 of look at Abraham, look at David, look at Sarah. The point of Hebrews chapter 11 is look at faith. Look at what faith can do. If faith can do this in the, mouth, in the life of a harlot, in the life of a murderer, in the life of a drunk, what could faith do in your life if you would let it? The superhero, the star of Hebrews chapter 11 isn't any one of these individuals. It's faith. Look at faith. And if you'll let it, faith can transform your life. Those steps that you're struggling with as a Christian, those doubts and that hesitancy, there's not a one of us sitting in this room today that there isn't some area in our life that we know we're not what we're supposed to be in that area. And we want it. I'm not even questioning your heart and your desire to be that. I know you want it. But you think you can't get there. The answer is faith. Look at faith. He said, all these people obtained a better report by faith. Faith did these things. And then we come to these individuals that I call the tomb of the unknown saint. These individuals at the end of the chapter that we don't know their name. We know nothing about them other than what faith caused them to do. To wander about in sheepskins and goatskins being destitute, tormented, afflicted, crawling on their hands and knees from caves to dens. You know what God said about them? The world's not worthy. When I read their story here, I can't help but think of the tomb of the unknown soldier in Arlington, Virginia. That's just what it calls to mind. Here's this tomb that we have in America, it's dedicated to soldiers. Who have given their life for our way of life in America. Some that we don't know, them, many, all these that we don't know their name, that's why they're called an unknown the tomb of the unknown soldier. We don't know their story of how they died, where they died, what all they did. But they gave their life for that. And you know, when I read this and think about who these people are, I just can't help but see a group of individuals that God said was not worthy, and here rest in and glory a saying, Known but to God. You know, God didn't tell me the name of the women that received their lives, their dead raised to life again. He didn't give us the name of those that were destitute, tormented, afflicted. He didn't give us the names of those that roamed around in sheepskins and goatskins. But He said, this is what I want you to know about them. The world wasn't worthy. I wonder this morning, if the Lord was to look at your faith, and what faith is doing in your life would he conclude the world's not worthy of this saint the world's not worthy of him. that's what he said about these people faith had caused them to live in such a way that god said the world was not worthy we've got it all backwards brothers and sisters we think this life is about getting our name out and being known making a name for ourselves, leaving an impression. I'll tell you what matters is to be known by God. The foundation of God stands sure, having this seal, the Lord knoweth them that are His. That's the question. Has faith caused you to draw close to God, led you to live life differently, to be what God has called you to be, so that you, like these individuals, God would look at you and say, the world's not worthy. That you're willing to endure no matter what and it's not because you're strong. But like these people, when we look at how they did these things, there's one simple answer. It wasn't because they loved Jesus more than you. It wasn't because they were smarter, tougher. It wasn't because their mom and father and grandma and grandpa and they've got a lineage 20 family generations deep in the church or in the faith. That's not what caused them to do this. What caused these people to live this way was faith. A complete and total trust in God. And you know how you're going to endure your difficult days? You know how you're going to overcome that sin that you've been battling low these many years? You know how you're going to finally take that step to become more of what God called you to be? By faith. You can't do it by yourself. You've got to put faith in God. Trust Him and do what He's called you to, to do in faith. Not worried about what the world says, not worried about what my family says. Just, God, what do you want me to do? I'm going to do it. And I'm going to be that kind of person. So how do I get this kind of faith that allows me to, to be the kind of person that God says the world's not worthy? He answers that for us in Hebrews chapter 12. Wherefore, seeing we are encompassed about with so great a cloud of witness... Let us lay aside every weight and the sin which has so easily beset us. And let us run with patience the race that's set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and has set down at the right hand of the throne of God. He says there's some things that you and I can do. And number one, he says, if you want faith that is life-changing, you need to lay aside every weight. I love how Hebrews 12 differentiates here between weights and sin. Did you catch that? Lay aside every weight and the sin. Not the same thing. So what's a weight? A weight are those things that slow you down. Things that technically you could stand before me in, in this audience and the whole world and go, you know, technically it's not a sin for me to do this. It, it's permissible. I can do this. It's not wrong before God. I can do this. But it slows you down and struggles you. You know, my daughter played high school basketball, and all the girls on her basketball team always practiced with ankle weights on. They loved to have the ankle weights on in practice. They thought the more that they practiced with ankle weights, then they'd take them off for the game. They could run faster. They could jump higher and all that fun stuff. You know what I've never seen in any level from youth all the way to pro is any team wear the weights while they're playing a game that mattered. If I'm coaching, and you're coaching, and you come up to me and go, listen, my team would like to wear ankle weights during the game. You know what I'm going to say? Yes, please. (laughs) Would you like some more? I will give you more. I will buy you all the weights you want. Why? Because they're going to run slower, they're going to jump lower, and they're going to tire faster. Brothers and sisters in Christ, if you want faith that changes your life, Get rid of the weights. Well, what do you mean? Well, maybe for some of us in this room, sports are our weights. That we get so caught up in college or professional this or that that it becomes a distraction to us for growing. Maybe it's family. Maybe it's work. Maybe it's a hobby. Maybe it's the TVs, the movies. There's a lot of things that fit in this list that I'm not sitting here going, they're a sin for you to do that. That's not the argument. The argument is what's slowing you down. And what your weight is may be different from the person sitting right next to you. And what you need to do is figure out what your weight is and lay it aside. And then you can begin dealing with the sin in your life. He said, lay aside the weight and the sin which does so easily beset us. In context, the sin he's specifically talking about is the sin of doubt, the sin of unbelief, the temptation to go back. That was their sin. What's yours? Lust, covetousness, pride. Where is it that you're struggling and have been struggling? He said, if you want a faith that transforms who you are fundamentally, It's time to get serious about sin in your life. It's time to stop calling truths with sins and making excuses. I know I've got an anger problem. I know I've got a mouth on me, but, but that's just the way my family is. No, it's not. I don't care if everybody in your family has an anger problem. That's not an excuse for you to blow up in sinful anger. I don't care if you grew up in a household where everybody shot off their mouth and hurt one another's feelings. That's not an excuse for you to use your words in a way that hurt people. It's time to get serious about the sins in your life. You want a faith that fundamentally transforms you? Then get serious and get in the battle against that sin. I'm not sitting here this morning telling you you've got to get rid of every sin and become perfect. I'm telling you you've got to get serious about the battle against it. It might whip you from now until the day they throw you in the ground and start kicking dirt in your face. But are you serious about the battle against it? Are you giving your whole heart a true effort to defeat it? Are you just giving in? You want a faith that transforms your life? Lay aside every weight, and the sin would just so easily beset you, and run your race with patience. I emphasize the word your here on this slide because, number one, I believe the focus is there on your race. Run the race that's set before you is specifically what Hebrews 12 and verse 1 says there. Run your race. You know what I'm really good at? I'm really good at running everybody else's race. I can tell you all the places you're struggling. Pardon me. I can tell you all the mistakes you're making. I can tell you how to fix the problems you're having. And I like to sit back and be the judge and critique everybody else's race. But he said, That's not how faith that changes you comes about. Faith that changes you comes with you focusing on your race. Doesn't mean that I don't reach out and help my brethren, you that are spiritual, help those that are, uh, have been overtaken by a sin, that were to be a family, would be a, a unit, a body that comes together, strengthens one another, edifies one another, in love, confronts one another. All that stuff is still true, but my focus starts with me. What's my race look like? Is Mike Hall a different Christian in 2023? Than he was in 2022. Has my faith grown at all? Is my life at all different? What am I doing? Run with patience the race that's set before you. And then lastly, look to Jesus. This is my favorite principle in this. Because he says, look to Jesus as the author and finish of our faith. There's something I want you to catch in this. He doesn't say, look to Jesus as the object of faith. As as in the thing that you have faith in. Yes, you're supposed to have that. But he says, look to Jesus as the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. You know what he's saying here is look to Jesus as an example of faith. You know when Jesus went in the tomb, you know what he went in the tomb with? Psalms tells us that he went in the tomb with a promise from the Father. I will not leave your soul in Hades, neither will, I suffer, allow the, neither will I suffer the Holy One to see corruption. God was making a promise to him, saying, I'm not going to leave you in that tomb. I will raise you up. Jesus went into the tomb, trusting the Father. Faith. He said, you look to Jesus, lest you become wearied and faint in your mind. And Isn't that the battle we face? we get tired and we get weary and we start doubting ourselves I can't do it I can't make it I've got to find a way to cover this sin up I can't let people see me like that and we begin to get weary and faint in our mind he said consider Jesus and look at him and focus on him And you can have a faith that will transform your life. That will make you vastly different than you are today. And the next year even different from that. A faith that God would look at and say, the world isn't worthy of this person. He's not worthy. The world's not worthy of their faith. He ends it all in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 4 and says, after telling them, to not be weary and faint in their mind. He said, for you have not resisted unto bloodshed yet striving against sin. You know one of the blessings we have in America is that we really don't suffer for being a Christian. We really don't. I mean people may make fun of you. There was a time, it's changing a little bit, but there was a time if a person tried to run for a public office in this country and they said, I'm not a Christian. They didn't have a chance. It might be changing a little bit on that, but not to the point of bloodshed. You know, there's places in the world today where to be a Christian could cost you your life. I don't know if you've read about stories in some of these other nations of what they've done to men who named the name of Christ. I'll tell you, if you've not read that, I'm going, to, I'm going to ask you don't go read it because they'll begin to describe things that they do to children and babies that'll just rip your heart out. It's, it's vile. It's horrendous. And We don't even have to suffer that. He said, you've not resisted to bloodshed yet, but I don't know what's coming in this world. I've got people panicking all around me going, oh, it's the end of the 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 Christian time. We're going to be persecuted. I don't know. I want to ask you a question. Suppose this morning as we gathered here to worship Jesus that all of a sudden the doors, the windows burst in and in stands all these armed men in masks. I know there may be somebody in here who has a gun on you. Allow me this illustration, please. They get the drop on you. And they separate us. They take all the men out to the yard and they put them in a cage and they douse them with gasoline and they look at the women and they say, deny Jesus or we'll kill them. Could you stand in that moment? When they lit the match and you heard the screams of your husbands and your sons Could you stand there and say, oh, how I love Jesus. How would you turn? Men, as you stood in that cave and they began to rape and torture and behead the women and the children, what would you do? I believe in a hill called Mount Calvary. I'll believe whatever the cost. What would you do in that moment? I hope every one of you in this room this morning feels a pit in your stomach as you honestly consider that moment. And I hope in your heart of hearts, you feel a defiance that says, I'll stand. I'll not waver. I won't give in in that moment. I'll stand for Christ. No matter the cost, I'll stand for Christ. I hope you feel that way. Let me ask you this question then. If you'll stand in that moment, why won't you stand Tuesday afternoon when your boss is asking you to lie? Why won't you stand Thursday night when you're tempted to look at something you shouldn't look at? Wednesday morning when you're tempted to lift yourself up above others. Why won't you stand in that moment? That's what faith is about. Not just helping you stand in this great moment, but helping you stand day by day, battle by battle. Faith that the world's not worthy of. I want to ask you this morning. He said, the just shall live by faith. But if any man draws back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. But we are not of them who draw back into perdition, but of them that believe to the saving of the soul. What are you doing? Are you drawing back? Are you believing to the saving of your soul, allowing faith to radically transform you? What is your faith like this morning? You know, one of the most amazing things to me is that God didn't just save me and say, get it all figured out, Mike. He said, you can keep coming back to me if you're struggling, if you need help. You can keep coming back to me. You heard before I stood up here that they announced an invitation song number. It's my belief that the purpose of the invitation isn't the invitation of me or the church. It's an invitation of Jesus Christ. That if you have a need, he stands ready to help you become what you need to become. But it takes you humbling yourself Will you allow, if you're struggling this morning, will you allow faith to cause you to take that step out into the aisle that'll lead you to the seat up here where together as a body of believers we can take your spiritual needs to our Lord and Savior. Will you allow faith to begin to transform who you are? If you'd like to take advantage of that, we ask you have a seat in this front row as we stand now to sing. We hope you enjoyed this teaching from God's Word. If there's anything we can do to help you in your walk with Christ, send us a message at facebook.com slash cfcnwa. To find more sermons, look for us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and like our Facebook page. Thanks for listening, and God bless.